Welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney Matthew Roberts, and the pandemic continues to be our focus of this podcast. Matthew, what are you seeing here in Columbia regarding people wearing masks and social distancing? Well, it's a mixed bag, Heather. Uh, I see a lot of people with masks, but frankly, a lot of people without masks and uh, see some folks not engaging in social distancing. So I, I think uh, DX message that recently went out this week to re-encourage folks to, to, to focus more on wearing masks and s- practice social distancing, hopefully that will work a little bit more effectively on folks. Because right now, it's, it's probably more folks not wearing masks and practicing social distancing than the folks that are actually doing it. Yes, and that's the same thing I've been seeing in Charleston. Though I have to tell you, over the past couple of days, I think I've noticed more masks. So that is a good thing. Um, Hopefully people are listening. But today on The Pulse, we are going to speak with an expert on all things regarding the pandemic. Dr. Linda Bell, South Carolina's epidemiologist, will join us in just a few minutes. So stay with us for Taking The Pulse. Welcome back, everybody. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney Matthew Roberts. And it seems that COVID 19 seems to be spiking in South Carolina, at least in places. Our next guest watches those numbers very carefully. And I've read that she looks at each number as a person, as a mother, daughter, friend, pastor. Dr. Linda Bell is South Carolina's epidemiologist. She works at South Carolina's Department of Health and Environmental Control, which is helping lead the state's response to COVID-19. Dr. Bell, thank you for joining us. We know you are so busy, and I hope today you don't mind if we start with talking about the recent news reports that we've seen where state healthcare leaders have joined together with the governor to ask, really urge people to wear masks and social distancing. What has caused this uh, resurgence or reminder for us to comply? Yes, well, um, Heather and Matthew, thank you for the invitation. And um, that that, um, urgency to, um, to use the masks as we have always recommended is driven by the fact that um, there's actually uh, a great concern of public health officials now looking at our trend data. We went through a period of time where it looked like our curve was relatively stable, but um, it's really disheartening now to see the, the trend that we are looking at over the last uh, week or more. And so the um, really the only mechanisms that we have in place are the use of masks and social distancing. It's the message that we've, get, that we've given all along and um, it, it is absolutely critical now that we have everyone pay attention to those numbers and recognize that there is really something that we can do to result in a downward trend in those cases. And it is the masks and it is social distancing and it is avoiding um, large gatherings. As the numbers go up and we, if we should not observe those practices, then we are amplifying our risk of exposure which will multiply cases. So the reason for the urgency of the message now for the use of the masks is driven really by the data. <clears throat> Dr. Bell, thanks again for joining us. Um, with these increase in, in numbers, do you think that's caused because we've had a reopening of the state or do you think it's because there's an increase in the number of people being tested or is it both? 
Well, it is a little bit of both. I mean, we, we've, in South Carolina, we have done a, a great job in markedly expanding the availability of testing, especially in underserved communities and in rural areas. And um, I wish I could say that it was just that expanded testing. And one of the ways that we tell is if we are doing a great job sampling or testing individuals in the community and capturing all people, then the percent of the total tests that we perform that are positive is relatively low. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that the percent positives is higher. So this is really telling us this is not just expanded testing. We're actually looking at a sicker population. We are seeing um, an increase in, um, in the, the number of individuals who are positive and in certain um, pockets in our communities and in certain um, particular populations in our communities. Oh, I'm sorry to hear this, Dr. Bell. Um, do you expect the CDC to make any modifications to the mask wearing guidelines or the social distancing? Well, that's hard to say because the CDC really only provides guidance. And it is really up to states and local jurisdictions to make uh, decisions about how they will apply the CDC guidance. And what the CDC has said all along, well, actually there have been some modifications. So early on when personal protective equipment was in limited supply and before we understood as much as we do about um, how easily transmissible this virus is, the CDC was saying that masks are not recommended for the general population. We need to preserve that personal protective equipment for healthcare workers and first responders who are at highest risk of having face-to-face -face contact with people who are sick. But as we learned more and as supplies became more abundant, and it, it became clear that um, not only was this more of a um, airborne virus and respiratory, but the fact that individuals can spread the virus shortly prior to even developing symptoms. So those messages about avoiding people who are sick were no longer as effective. And that's when the CDC began recommending the use of masks more widely, more routinely. And, um, and so beyond what's being said now that they are really recommended in public as much as possible, I don't see how the CDC can strengthen that anymore. That message uh, as it stands is we should be wearing masks in public and in addition to that, not instead of maintaining those six feet of social distance. That makes sense. Back to, to, to your reference about testing. Um, we've all heard a lot about the different times, types of tests, whether they be the PCR test or the antibody test. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of the differences between the two and how you foresee the testing evolving or we have changes in tests? Are there new tests coming out? Yes, Matthew, that's a really important question because we have um, one test, you mentioned the PCR test. That's a test that gives us the ability to detect the genetic material in a virus. And so that tells us that is diagnostic that somebody has been infected. The other tests that are being rolled out are these antibody or serology tests. And what that test detects is the presence of an antibody that develops in the bloodstream in response to being exposed to the virus. Some things we wanna make sure of about those tests as they're, as they're being rolled out is that they're actually detecting the COVID-19 virus and not other related viruses. But what we really need in a serologic test that would help us a great deal is if we had a test that detected an antibody that was evidence of immunity against future infection. And unfortunately, there's not a test available yet that tells us that. 
So the uh, serologic test has some limited utility. It just tells us about previous infection. It doesn't tell us about future protection. And we don't know yet whether if you have been infected with COVID, or we don't know with 100% certainty, whether you will be immune in the future from being exposed to it again? Yes, that's not known right now. Um, with, with some other viruses, uh, some you may get short-term immunity, long-term immunity. The CDC is actually um, entertaining some studies now to see if there's any evidence of reinfection. But uh, we only have a track record with the COVID-19 virus of, of, if we think about it, it's only a matter of a few months now. And so it is, uh, we're still learning uh, additional information and we don't have a long enough track record to really tell if uh, people are being reinfected. It's under study. What about a vaccine? Is that on the horizon? Well, um, vaccines are in development. And um, what I'm aware of now, I think in the United States and in Europe at this time, I believe believe there are only two vaccines that are in various stages of development. Vaccine development can, um, can, take, can take months uh, and sometimes longer to demonstrate some of the things that we just discussed. It's not only is the vaccine safe, but is it, is it effective in uh, preventing future infection? And, um, and those are some of the things that have to be investigated through preliminary trials and through clinical trials, and then to collect evidence of whether or not those who have been vaccinated are protected. So right now, um, there are only uh, two in development in the United States and Europe, and it's really difficult to say when those uh, might be available as a, as a tool. On the um, topic of vaccines, has there been any evidence that people have, are immune to this vaccine naturally? Is, is it, have you seen anything related to that? Well, um, I, I guess a couple of things that might speak to that. One is the, um, that in some instances, people who have um, had the disease and recovered, that they can donate their plasma. And the plasma has been used to treat individuals who are currently ill. And the evidence as to whether or not that, that plasma from people who have previously been affected or infected is beneficial to those who are sick. So uh, that could potentially be evidence of some protective antibodies in the bloodstream. But um, again, without a long track record, it's really not clear if individuals are actually protected from infection in the future if they, if they are known to have uh, had COVID-19 infection in the past. <clears throat> we have heard and seen some employers do testing for their employees um, before letting them come back to work. And do you expect school districts to do something similar to this um, as we look at what may happen in the fall as, as kids try to go back to school in person? Yes. Testing for entry, um, it, it can be problematic in my opinion. And, and, and this is the way I'd like people to think about this, is that, and, and at this time we're talking about the uh, PCR test. So if you get a PCR test, it's just one point in time. It's literally one day in time. So if you're negative with that PCR test in that day, and they're using that as evidence to return to work or return to school, what happens in the following week or something like that that you become exposed. So it really only gives you information about that one point in time. Now the use of testing for healthcare workers is really important because um, in some occupations, people who are still carrying the virus 
should not return to work because of the risk of spreading the virus to others. So testing healthcare workers for, um, to, to see if they have turned negative after they've been positive is really important. But the widespread use of testing in, in schools, in higher education, and um, for return to employment can be problematic because um, it can give people a false sense of security. If you test negative, does that mean you don't still have to wear a mask or social distance? And the answer is no. You can still be at risk of infection at a later date and you would have to be retested. What about the false um, negatives that we've seen um, with some initial PCR testing? I know that can be how the test is initially applied and how the swabbing is done, but I, I've seemed to have read that there were some indications that during early exposure, there's a fair amount of false negatives with, with results. Is, are you seeing the same thing? Um, <clears throat> I think earlier on, when there were a number of um, antibody tests that were being rolled out that had not been validated, how, um, how sensitive they are and the ability to pick up the virus, <coughs> excuse me, how sensitive they are in being able to pick up the virus and not cross-reacting with other related viruses was a problem. And when um, the, the FDA sort of clamped down on that and only allowed the use of certain validated tests, that is less of a problem now. Now, as an epidemiologist, you have studied infectious disease your entire career, uh, which is really an interesting career. Did you ever think that you would be faced with something like this? And, and what have you learned through this pandemic? Well, um, Heather, no, I, what we're confronted with now, I really never um, dreamed that we would be seeing what we're seeing now. Um, I can say that in, in my years in public health, I have um, seen the emergence of a number of novel viruses or the reemergence of viruses. We've seen everything from, uh, but not just viruses, bacteria. If we, we ask the audience to think about things like the E. coli 0157, um, that, was, that was not known prior to maybe you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we've seen Zika. We have seen um, the SARS virus, the MERS virus, and all of these behaved in a way that they did emerge, um, caused a great deal of anxiety and fear in populations. But um, what we're seeing now with COVID-19 has been entirely unexpected in a number of ways. That we thought this is going to be like a flu pandemic, which we have seen before, behave like a respiratory virus. It was unexpected that it could potentially affect every organ system in the body, that we're seeing effects in the brain, the kidneys, the cardiovascular system, and so forth, that it is spread more by airborne and not respiratory droplets, and that, um, that there are unexpected complications. And so, um, and the most, the most um, unexpected thing is just the devastating worldwide transmission to the degree that we're seeing that I um, could have never expected. Over the past several months, um, you've become one of the state's most recognizable public figures and have been a part of a lot of uh, media events where the government's talking about the, our response to the pandemic. What have you learned during this time about communicating to the public during a pandemic, um, which has caused a lot of fear, a lot of concern uh, for South Carolinians. Yes, well, you mentioned the fear. Um, I, I, I think one thing that, I've, that I have tried to do is to um, 
is to give people information that they could use so that they could have some control to reduce fear so that to bring an understanding that there are measures that we can take. Even now, there are things that we can do with the reopenings to, um, to keep us safe. Um, I think I've also learned about uh, how it's important to say what you don't know. This is a novel virus and as we've gone along and as I think back on some of the things that we said early on, that as we learned more, we had to modify our recommendations. Um, I learned not to be pressed into speculation. Uh, people really want to know, they want dates in advance, what to expect, and when it's not possible to, um, to comment on that, it's, I just think it's really important to say uh, what you don't know. And, and I've tried really hard to, to provide um, information that people could use without sensationalizing anything or uh, have attempted in any way not to generate more fear be, with the understanding that people are already very, very concerned. Is there anything um, in closing that, that you would, if there are a couple of points that you'd like to make to the public or to the people listening to this podcast to just really take to heart and take home that, uh, that you would like to share with us? Well, I can share information. It is like a broken record, but um, you know, I, I, I have um, hoped to communicate that in the absence of the great questions that you've asked about you know, in the absence of a, of a vaccine that could protect people, and in the absence of evidence of a test that could tell us who's immune and who's not, that the only measures that we have are really, they, they sound so simple, but it's all we have is to use a mask when you may be in contact with someone else, avoid crowds, practice good hygiene, it protects us against this virus and it protects us against everything else. And, um, and these are inconveniences. It's hard. Um, I would like people to, to think about how this has worked in other cultures, for example, in Hong Kong, where they had some devastating consequences when the SARS virus emerged. And they quickly learned and quickly adopted the widespread use of masks in that country. And um, it made a significant difference. And if we can go through that inconvenience here to stop the spread, because the longer that we drag this out, um, the more that we will all be impacted economically, socially, and if we can adopt some more stringent measures more quickly and more universally, it will put us all in a much better position and, and the devastation of these illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths, there is so much more we can do to prevent that. And I think the final thing that, that I would add is that um, another sort of alarming thing in, in our most recent data is an unexpected, uh, we look at this information by population groups. Early on, we saw more older individuals who were ill, those who were being tested more. And our more recent data tells us that it is 15 to 25 year olds are making up a larger and larger proportion of our cases. And, um, and so we hope to convey to our young people what they can do to, um, to help us all. Dr. Bell, are you seeing a are you seeing a trend with those increased tests and increased hospitalizations? Or I know that data may not be available yet, but are you seeing that? Well, well, actually, this is interesting because the increase in the disease trend, um, or I should say hospitalizations, are not exactly reflecting that increase in disease trends. And one explanation for that is that there are probably more people in the population who are younger 
and um, who are less likely to be hospitalized. So while we're seeing more and more cases, and these cases are fueling the spread, but they're not necessarily being hospitalized because they're younger and healthy, but nonetheless, um, it is that activity, those social activities that are, um, that are potentially putting us all at risk, including those with underlying health conditions and older individuals. So uh, that could be one explanation for why hospitalizations are not going up as quickly, but uh, that is something that concerns me, that as we see disease rates up, go up, we may again see hospitalizations begin to climb. Dr. Bell, this is sobering news, um, but it, it will help us to make, hopefully, uh, the right decisions. And so, again, I thank you for your service to the state. Uh, I'm grateful that you are there watching out for us um, and continuing to um, guide us as we move through this. And we uh, wish you much strength, that you'll be strong and very courageous in the months ahead. Uh, and thank you for joining us today on Taking the Pulse. Thank you, Dr. Bell. Thank you again for the invitation. I wish everybody good health. Thank you so much. Thank you, ma'am. Matthew, that's, that's sobering news now. Young, young people. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that this, I think, brings home the message that uh, information and good information is our key to responding to this pandemic and recognizing the importance of public health uh, and, and, and listening to people like Dr. Bell who have committed their, their careers to helping our state. Um, it's very important. And, you know, checking the DHEC website, the CDC website, getting your information from those places which have good right. data, uh, as opposed to uh, maybe getting it off of social media or from a friend. I think that's going to be important for, for us to, to respond to this crisis. And really making a self-sacrifice of it might be inconvenient, but I'm going to avoid this or I'm going to do that, i.e. wear my mask. Right. Correct. Exactly right. Well, I suspect the pandemic will continue to be a focus for us on taking the pulse for the coming months. And for those of you joining today, thank you for joining us. We hope you will join us next time on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. <laughs>